Hey listeners, my name is Meg and I'm a volunteer here at Cellbox Church. I want to welcome you to our podcast. I love that the teaching here isn't about flashy gimmicks or hidden agendas. It's all about diving deep into thought-provoking, Jesus-centered discussions. We're glad you're here and we'd love to get to know you better. So please don't hesitate to reach out with your prayer requests, questions, and comments at our website, saltboxchurch.com. Good morning. Uh, I realize that is a little bit unusual. There's very few churches um, that do that type of thing, but it is very important to me and to us that you understand that there's a leadership structure behind what you're doing. There's an accountability structure behind this. Um, And so occasionally we're going to pause during a Sunday morning service and just celebrate uh, the leadership and the people who are here um, doing this with us. Make sense? Okay. Thank you, Jesus. Let's see, I am in Acts 14. Um, This is a messy passage this morning, Um, so I'm afraid my outline is not like crystal clear with three points and a shebang at the end. Um, So it is, this is a messy passage. We're journeying through the book of Acts, and we're going to take a look at Paul in a city called Iconium, and then he goes from there to a place called Lystra um, and another city called Derbe, and we're going to attempt to look at what is it about Paul, this is the question we're going to ask, what is it about Paul um, that God uses to so mark and transform a city? Okay? And then, obviously, the, the, the pivot, uh, maybe it's not obvious, but the pivot is, can then God use someone like who? That's right, you and me, us. Can, can God, if God chose someone like the Apostle Paul um, and, and what was going on inside of him, uh, and can, if God uses him to transform cities, to impact cities with the presence and power of the gospel of Jesus, can God use someone like me or you? Sound good? Okay, so uh, here's the quote we're going to start with, and if I do my job right, we're going to bring it back to this at the very end. Oswald Chambers, anybody know him? Come on, I had a few who's, that's good. He wrote a book, he's most famous for a book called My Utmost for His Highest, which is like a little devotional. It's not little, it's a 365 daily devotional, it's very good. Um, But here's what he said. It is not what a person does that is of final importance, but what a person is in what they do. The atmosphere produced by a person, much more than their activities, has the lasting influence. Do I need to say it again? Okay. It is not what a person does that is of final importance, but what a person is in what they do. The atmosphere produced by a person, much more than their activities, has the lasting influence. Now, let me caution us here for just a minute. What Oswald is not talking about is like the, the common sort of new age idea of an aura and sort of the energy field. No, no, no. That is not what he is talking about. So it's like separate that from you. What he is talking about is when um, the, the living God comes in and takes up residence inside a man or a woman or a young person and he begins to transform them and the life of Jesus begins to be lived out in and through that person, then who they are, more important than what they say, more important than what they do, who they are and they, them becoming, if you will, the hands and the feet and the face of Christ Jesus is what matters. Does that make sense? I remember being younger, and um, I would hear different uh, uh, pastors and leaders. I grew up in the church, so I've been in this this organization, not this particular one, but in the big church organization a long, long time. And I remember people would say, we're the hands and feet and face of Jesus. And me being the 
slightly snarky young person that I was was like, yeah, yeah, right. You're the hands and feet and face of like, what? But as I have grown in my faith and I've begun to understand that I, when I come to Jesus, I'm, tran- I'm, I'm exchanging, if you will, my brokenness, my deadness of heart for the life of Jesus and newness of heart inside of me. And therefore, when Michael goes somewhere, who goes? Jesus. Now, is that perfect? No. Does Michael navigate perfectly? No, no more than you do. In fact, many times I have to go to my spouse and other people around me, hey, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? So I'm representing or carrying Jesus imperfectly. So be free. Take a big, deep breath. You don't have to be perfect. But if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then you become an extension of him. And therefore, whose hands, whose face, whose feet are you? His. So theologically, there is great accuracy in that statement. So let's take a look at this text, um, sort of looking at Oswald's uh, quote here, and then looking at the life of Paul and Barnabas as they roll into these cities. So I'm going to read the first three verses of Acts chapter 14. If you're scrolling on your phone in version or Bible Gateway or whatever, go there, um, open your Bible. I'm a paper Bible fan, pens, and you know I'm always putting dates and little notes because um, I like to interact and, and make notes of it with uh, the Holy God. So, Father, as we read this this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts 14, starting in verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. Now, they always start in the synagogue. I love this about Paul. He is so committed, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He honors the way God Almighty set things in motion. God chose the Jewish race, um, and he always offers to the Jewish people first. And oftentimes, what do the Jewish people do? Kick him out, hate on him, reject him, yell at him, whatever. And then, where does he get dejected? No, does he go and sit in the corner? Does he pout? No, 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 no. He goes from there and he takes that as his freedom then to move from the Jewish people to to who? Gentiles. That's the rest of us. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Welcome. Okay. So they go as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Here you go. There's the biblical um, mandate for preaching well. They spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believe. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and, this is super strong language, what's what's yours say? Poisoned their minds. Poisoned their minds against the brothers. Who are the brothers? Paul and Barnabas and the other people rolling with them. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. Okay, why did they spend considerable time there? All right, let's go back. So, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles, and what did they do? Poison their minds. So because their minds have been poisoned against the brothers, Paul and Barnabas spend considerable time there. So when things get really tough, what does Paul do? He digs in and stays. You know, most of us, when things get tough, what do we do? I don't like this church. 
right? But, but things get tough for the Apostle Paul. Um, thing, people are coming against him. He is suffering. Now, remember, we talked all about his uh, malaria last week. He may is likely still sick at this point, may still be having some fevers. You can go back and listen to that if you like. But So the stuff gets tough for Paul, and what's he do? Man, we're going to camp out. We're going to hang here a while. Okay. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So God, they're working, they're preaching, they're sharing the word, and what's God doing? He's showing up and confirming it with signs and wonders. I mean, it's a very, very cool partnership. I mean, talk about the the blessing and the gracious hand of God on your ministry or on their ministry as they are preaching and doing their stuff. All of a sudden, people are getting healed. Stuff is happening. Signs and wonders are unfolding. Verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. Okay, so let's pause here for just a minute. And I'm going to try to wander through um, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and we're just going to try to, um, I don't know, kind of open up some possibilities in this. But one, one of the things that I love um, in, this, in this particular city, in Iconium, is some years, I think it was around two or 300 um, uh, common era or AD, um, there was a, a text found in the city of Iconium, and it was actually called the Acts of Paul um, and Thecula, or Thecla. Okay? And it didn't make it into the canon of Scripture because it had no association. The authors had no association with an apostle. They had no knowledge or relationship with an apostle. And that gets a little bit weird at the end of the writing. But regardless, here's where I think is very empower, um, powerful about it. And this is, there's one, there's like two or three places we have a physical description of Paul. So this is the physical description, what Paul looks like as a human. Um, and, and it's written in this, the Acts of Paul that was discovered in Iconium. All right, here's what it says. You ready? Get ready to be impressed. This is the description of Paul. And he saw Paul coming, a man small in size, bald-headed. Come on. Crooked thighs, bow-legged, well-built, his eyebrows met, had a rather long hooked nose, was full of grace, and sometimes he seemed like a man, and sometimes he had the countenance of an angel. Now, here's what I want you to begin to wrestle with. Paul was called by God to carry the gospel. He's one of the greatest theologians and writers and apostles that ever lived, in my opinion. And he goes from city to city. He's preaching the gospel. What was it about Paul that enabled him to so transform a city? Was it his bow legs? Or his, or his hook nut? I mean, you start getting what I'm saying here. Okay, so this man is so, um, you know, when we read these letters of his, the epistles of his, he is so mighty. And yet when we look at the description of him, and there's a couple other um, people, um, extra biblical, who have this same description of him, so it it holds. Um, But I love when you have a historical narrative, a biblical narrative, and an archaeological narrative all kind of align. And you do right here, because it talks about Paul being an Iconium. So Paul comes into Iconium with his bow legs, his bald head, his hook nose, his meeting eye 
eyebrows, and I guess he's well-built from making tents. All right, so wrestle with me. What is it about Paul that God chose to use? Why this man? Um, And then how do you and I access this same level of call and influence? Okay? All right. So the first thing that I would point out and I already kind of pointed it out here, but you get this idea of they're preaching the word, they're doing the gospel work, and God, if you're new here, if you're a non-believer, a doubt, or atheist, welcome, we love that you're here, um, but gospel just means good news. That's all it means, the good news of King Jesus. So anytime I use that or we see it in the scripture, that's all it means. So they are preaching the word, um, they're doing the work, and God is showing up and, and performing these wonders among them. And we don't even know exactly what is happening, but talk about, you got, you got Jews who are refusing to believe, they're stirring up Gentiles. Meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas are preaching every single day, God is showing up, performing these signs and wonders, and what's the whole city doing? I mean, they're wondering, they're turning out. You get this idea that the entire city is coming out to hear and to watch what is happening. Okay. Let me quote John Calvin here. I think this is worth, this is worth noting. John Calvin once wrote, God hardly ever allows miracles to be detached from his word being preached. Their true use is in the establishing of the gospel in its full and genuine authority. Okay, so let's continue on, but I, but I, I want to also go back. I'm sort of pausing, but I want to go back to 14.2. The Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds. Everybody say poisoned their minds. We could probably do an entire message on this. I kind of went, Lord, do I park here? And I just want to make a few comments. I'm not going to do the whole message on this, and we're going to keep running. But Hebrews 12, 15, if you want to do a cross-reference, says, See to it that not one of you falls short of the grace of God, and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitter root grows up out of the heart, causes trouble to defile many. So is the poisoning of your mind, could that be considered a bitter root? Yeah, I think so. In fact, we're not positive that that Paul wrote Hebrews. He may have. I like to think that someone he influenced wrote Hebrews because its theology is so good. But regardless, um, you know, I think that when that was written, it's at least possible that Paul was thinking of this time where, where believers or people who were in a Jesus journey had their minds poisoned. Okay? Now, let's just expand it one more time. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins, this is Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Do you go shout it to the church? Do you go blab it to your neighbors? Do you go talk about it to everybody else? What do you do? Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. I mean, this is the, this is the words of the Lord Jesus, pretty heavy. So is it wrong that these Jews um, disagreed or were frustrated or were angry at what Paul and Barnabas were saying? No, but was it sinful in the way in which they handled it? Yes, and they're causing this great division um, sort of in the church and what God is doing. But what I love about God is he is never, he is not thwarted, he is not worried, he is not anxious. I mean, a lot of times when things happen in our world, we become super anxious, right? 
I mean, like right now, for example, um, the, the studies and the, the Barna group has done a study. There's a couple other groups that I read. But uh, in 2005-ish, um, there was about 92 people in America that would say they were like evangelical Christian. And right now, there's like 62% of people in America would say they're evangelical Christian. Now, for some of us, we go, now, is that a scary statistic? I think so. But here's what's absolutely exciting is when things get difficult, when things get challenging, when things get dark, the stage is suddenly set for the God of the universe to come and show up in a powerful way that transcends human understanding and experience. So while many people and commentators are looking at this decline and it's the end of Christianity, no, 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 no. Not only is it not the end of Christianity, everybody, listen, not only is it not the end, it might be the new beginning and the table actually may be being set across the countries of the world for another great awakening. It's kind of what I see happening here. It's that as they begin to go through city after city, preaching the gospel, things get dark, things get difficult, and as that happens, suddenly the power of God is able to show up. Okay. Before we move off of this idea of poison mind, this is probably worth mentioning. On your social media account, so your YouTube or your Instagram, let's just limit it to that. We could probably also do Facebook, I don't know. But on your YouTube or on your Instagram, the thing you search, guess what then happens in your, in your feed? And then you search it again and guess what happens? And then you search it again and guess what happens? Okay. You, you could tell a lot about a person by going to their social media feed and just hitting the search button and find out where their brain is. So if you're feeding yourself a steady diet of conspiracy theories, what are you likely going to continue to see? If you're feeding yourself, a, it doesn't matter what you feed yourself a steady diet of. Uh, on my Instagram, I sometimes look at people who are surfing. So guess what pops up? Surfers, you know, it's like not mind-numbing for me. But whatever you search, it could be kids' clothes, it could be fashion, it could be real estate, it doesn't really matter. But the point is, what you give yourself to is what shows up. So the, the poisoning of your mind, if you give yourself to one news outlet or one line of thinking or one limited, narrow, dogmatic or authoritarian sort of way of looking at the world, guess what shows up? That same thing. And it's like you get deeper and deeper into whatever rabbit hole you're in. You follow me? The poisoning of the human mind is also, it's like, it's like when, you, when you cut out outside influences, when you don't allow a myriad of voices, when you don't sift things through the water of the word. Um, there's a number of different ways. And as you even take this journey with me as, as your pastor, you will hear some of my story. Because I went through a seven-year period, dark dark period from age 19 to 26 or 27 in which my mind was actually poisoned. And not only was my mind poisoned, I participated in poisoning other people's minds. Because what do people with poisoned minds do? Poison others. Go back to Hebrews, what was it, 12, 15? See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Okay. Watch your self-perpetuating cycles. 
inject something new in. Find freedom. The, the freedom of Christ longs to set you free and does not want you living in your own poisoned mind. Follow? Okay, we might need to do a whole message on that sometime. Okay, amen. All right, uh, let's keep going. Um, Speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. We don't even know. Dr. Luke didn't even write down what the signs and wonders were. Verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot uh, a foot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. Now, who's this? Paul and Barnabas, that's right. So, but they found out about it. Who's they? The church, the disciples. The, yeah, somebody found out about it and told Paul and Barnabas. And they fled to the Lysonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued, where they hid and buried their faith under, no, no. Verse 7, where they continue to what? Preach the gospel. Preach the good news. Okay, so I, I think we actually have to say here, the gospel of Jesus will always do two things. It will always both unite and divide. It unites people who are coming under the lordship of Christ, but it divides people who are fighting against the lordship of Christ. It's uh, fascinating to me because in the 1700s, uh, there was a guy named John Wesley and another guy named George Whitfield. And uh, this is, it's interesting I even mentioned the, um, the Great Awakening because these guys uh, led the front end of the first Great Awakening. And they hit a point where the churches kicked them out. Okay, And so the churches kicked them out and they both had this kind of like crisis of faith. So do we quit preaching? And, the, and so uh, eventually, uh, Whitfield really started first. He stood on this hill, and he just started preaching. And guess what happened? Everybody came. Like, it was crazy. And then the church said, hey, if you preach outside, that's of the devil. Can you imagine the church saying that? Because they're what? Come on. They're jealous. They're frustrated. These huge crowds are going. So Whitfield and Wesley begin to preach out of doors. The church is hating on them. And all of a sudden, this, this great awakening erupts in the United Kingdom, and it spreads to the colonies in the east coast of America. Now, what's absolutely fascinating is similarly here, and even similarly in the day of Jesus, you have Jesus who is preaching the freedom and the life and the grace of Christ. And what do the religious people do? They hate on him. Same with Paul and Barnabas. They're preaching life. They're preaching the, 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 whole, the resurrection power of King Jesus. And what do the religious people do? Hate them. Not only hate them, they try to stone them. Now, like, this is, this is just quickly. Stoning would be taking a stone. I didn't have one big enough or I would have brought it. But you take a large, jagged stone. And in um, the Middle East, in Palestine, guess what is everywhere? It's not like here where there's like pine tree forests everywhere. No, no. They have stones everywhere. It's like arid and stony. So you can bend down on any piece of ground anywhere, and there's a, a stone. So stoning is literally um, you would pick up a stone, and you're going to huck it at somebody. And everyone around picks up stones, and they begin to throw them at someone. And the stones begin to hit and cause someone um, to bleed. And eventually they're going to um, fold under the weight of it, and they'll ultimately die. All right, we're going to come back to that. Okay, <clears throat> so the gospel um, both unites and it divides. So uh, Paul and Barnabas are kicked out. Um, 
So sometimes, sometimes you experience what Henry Cloud calls a necessary ending. This is a necessary ending. There is a time. So when Jesus reached the point of death, did he run? No, he stayed. Paul and Barnabas in this particular case, when they reach the point where they're threatened with death, what do they do? They ran. You can't make a law out of this. You've got to follow what the Holy Spirit of God is calling you to do. But I, I wonder if we sat with Paul and Barnabas and just asked, like if I could put them on the stage on a stool this morning and just chat with them, and go, which I'm going to do when I get to heaven, by the way. Um, but if we could just chat with them, I want to know, how did you feel emotionally when you had to like leave under the cover of darkness because everybody was going to stone you? Did you feel like a failure? Did you feel rejected? Did you feel like you'd failed Jesus? Did you feel like you failed the church? Like, did you feel like your ministry was absolutely worthless? I mean, did all of your courage drain out from within you? Like, where were you? Were you, like, depressed? Were you sad? Did you just want to quit and go home? Let's keep reading in verse 8. So they, they leave. They're run out of a city. They leave in verse 8. And in, in Lystra, so they go to a different city it's right nearby, there sat a man who was lame, and he had been that way from birth, and he had never walked Verse 9, he listened to Paul as he was speaking. So what is Paul speaking? He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching Jesus. And Paul looked directly at him, and this parallels almost perfectly what Peter did in Acts 3, by the way, if you want to make a note there. But Paul looked at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. I don't understand that text, honestly. He had faith to be healed. I'm not sure faith is a gift. Verse 10, and he called out, stand up on your feet. I actually can't imagine that. That's like me standing up here preaching, and I'm looking out. Someone is sick. He hasn't been able to walk since birth. And, and me seeing that he has faith and then calling out, hey, stand on your... And the person did what? I mean, it's like, talk about the, the sign of God. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lysonian language, uh, the gods have come down to us in human form. This is kind of weird, huh? Verse 12, look at this. Barnabas they called who? Zeus. And Paul they called who? Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to who? To, that's right, to Paul and to Barnabas, calling them what? God, Zeus and Hermes. Okay, when I read this, I was like, first read, I was like, what in the world does this even mean? Here's the, the really short, um, the quickest, shortest way I can even tie this together. But there was a guy named Ovid who wrote a, a, a piece of writing called the Metamorphosis. And um, he mentions uh, a situation like this. And then secondly, um, there's two inscriptions on a stone altar right outside of, of Lystra to this day um, that indicate Zeus and Hermes uh, were worshipped together as local patron deities. Okay? So again, you've got um, archaeology and biblical and history kind of laying all across and, and coinciding. Um, but apparently what happened in Lystra is the crowd had this um, kind of superstitious and fanatical um, mindset. And legend had it that Zeus and Hermes actually visited Lystra in disguise. They asked for a place to stay. No one would give them a place to stay except these, um, these two poor peasants. And so later, uh, Zeus and Hermes did what, you know, 
Greco-Roman gods do, and they destroyed the town. Okay? So the townspeople of Lystra were likely, when these two guys showed up, and they have this legend in their minds or this thing in their minds, they're likely looking for Zeus and Hermes because they don't want to do what? Repeat history, right? So the only way I can make sense of this is they had this uh, legend about what's happened. So these guys show up, they perform, they're preaching Jesus in a very powerful way. They perform a miracle. So everybody this time, so the, the city doesn't get destroyed, want to treat them as gods, literally. So they want to make sacrifices to them. Um, and I, I think what's interesting, let's, keep, let's just keep reading and then I'll, I'll pause. Um, they brought wreaths to the city gates because the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you the good news, that's the other word for gospel, telling you to turn from these worthless things. What are the worthless things? Idols is actually what they're talking about to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, I love this um, because Paul and Barnabas may pass right here the largest test of a Christian faith leader. What do they want to do with Paul and Barnabas? Make them gods. So if Paul and Barnabas would have stayed and let them make this sacrifice, the people probably would have built what for Paul and Barnabas? A temple, and they would have gotten all manner of offerings and things. They would have gotten wealth. They would have gotten all, I mean, you, you can just fill in the blank of all the things that, that Paul and Barnabas would have gotten. And they would have set up for themselves a what? A really good life, probably. And instead, they pass this, like I would say, almost like the cardinal test, is when people want to elevate Paul and Barnabas, they actually tear their clothes, which is Old Testament, it's really an Old Testament symbol, for getting on their knees, humbling themselves, uh, letting everyone know how absolutely distraught they are. So they would have had an outer robe and an inner robe, so they're not like revealing themselves, they're just tearing their outer robe. Um, So they tear their clothes, and they go, hey, we're just like you all. We are no different than you. And I love, and I think that God actually not so saw their heart posture here that he's going to continue to honor them and lift them and send them because they continue to point to who? Jesus. Instead of who? Make a note. Okay. All right, verse 16. Now, I just a couple of thoughts as we head into this. Paul begins to preach to them. Now, he's got a torn robe, right? And he says, in the past, he let nations go their own way. Who's he? God. Now, um, what I love about Paul is Paul, when he goes into a city, where does he start? Preaching. The synagogue. So when he preaches in the synagogue, those people are of what, um, what origin? They're Jewish, okay. So because they're Jewish, they know the Old Testament. So when he preaches to them, what's he start with? The Old Testament. But now he is in a Greco-Roman city. Do they know the Old Testament? No. Do they know, um, are they Jewish? No. So what does he start with? Let's go back one verse. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the 
heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So what you see Paul make this brilliant pivot from I'm going to preach. When I preach to the Jews, I preach with the Old Testament. When I preach to the Gentiles, I'm going to start with creation. It's very cool. So Paul, uh, he's preaching the same Jesus, God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, but based on who he's speaking to, he makes this pivot and shifts. It's, it's the same message, but his entrance point is different. This is so important for you and I, because when you're talking to a person of one um, background or even one um, cultural heritage or one from one country or another, there are different ways that the Holy Spirit of God will actually call us to gain entrance or to um, cause that person to, to incline their ear or listen to us. Does that make sense? So this, I think, being ready to sort of pivot when you're sharing Jesus is so important. I love that Paul does this. Okay. A bug on my stage. <laughs> Pardon me. That was a very holy moment. Okay. In the past, verse 16, he let the nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. So he's telling them about this God, right? He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to who? To them. This is wild. Verse 19. Now, we don't know how much time passes here, but then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over. So you get the idea. It could even be the same day. So some people rise up. There's this kind of mob happening. They're trying to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And then it says, so they, try, they won the crowd over. And then this is crazy to me. They what? They stoned Paul and they dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Okay, the only thing I can even liken this to is like when King Jesus, if those of you who've been and, and heard us, especially around Easter when we're talking about the resurrection and the death of Jesus, um, the only thing I can even liken this to is on uh, what we call Palm Sunday when the people are singing Hosanna, which translates save us now, when they're waving their palm branches. That's why I'm waving my hand. They were waving palm branches. Some of you are like, what is that guy doing? Um, so Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem and people are going, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, waving these palm branches. And it wasn't but a couple of days later then Jesus is, the same Jesus is standing before the same crowd and then Pontius Pilate is there and, and they, the Pontius Pilate gives them the opportunity to set Jesus free and the crowds yell, crucify him. And if I could like open something right here, it is the the fickleness, and if I could even use the word evil of the human heart that is inherent in the flesh of you and of me is absolutely scary. That on one day we could go, we love you, we want to sacrifice to you, you're the best. And on the next we're picking up stones to absolutely break you and kill you. On one day we're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. And when you don't save us the way you, we want you to save us, we now yell, crucify. And if I would call us as a church even to recognize anything, that from this day until the day you and I cross over into eternity, and every one of us will cross over, whether we live 50 or 70 or 80 or 90 years, it doesn't matter, but we will all cross over that shroud into eternity. And from this day until that day, you will have a flesh pattern or a sin principle. Paul calls it sarks in the New Testament, S-A-R-X, but living inside of you, and you absolutely must choose to reject 
reject it and crucify it with the King of kings and Lord of lords, lest the evilness in your own heart rise up and you become poisoned in your mind. They stoned Paul, so they throw these stones at him and they break him. And at the end, they think he's dead, so they probably grab him by the ankle or by the arm. A couple of them grab him and they drag him outside the city and they throw him, throw him in a dung heap, literally. They left him for what? Dead. Verse 20, but after the disciples had gathered around him. Now, did the, did the disciples run? Who are the disciples? The church, the people, the people in, in this city. So the disciples gather around him. What do you think they were doing? Probably praying. He got up. And what's he do? I love this part. He goes back into the city. He goes back into the city that has just stoned him. He is bleeding. He is probably hobbling. He is broken. He probably has broken bones. Like he is absolutely busted. He would have been bleeding everywhere. And he stands up and he goes back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, I got to tie this up, but I want to read 2 Corinthians 3.10. This is 2 Corinthians 3.10. Here's what it says. I'm not 2 Corinthians. 2 Timothy 3.10. Here's what 2 Timothy, forgive me, says. Yeah, come on, band. You can come on back out here. You, however, uh, know all about my teaching. This is Paul writing to a guy named Timothy. Now, Timothy was the pastor of one of the most successful churches in Ephesus. This is what Paul says. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. Verse 11, here it is. My persecutions and my sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch? What's the next city? Iconium and Lystra. Where are we? Iconium and Lystra. You know what kinds of things happened to me in Iconium? And in Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Here's what I want you to see. Almost assuredly, a little boy by the name of Timothy was watching when the Apostle Paul was stoned. Okay? And Paul may have felt, even in this moment, almost like a failure because the whole city didn't turn. There wasn't, it didn't look like there was massive outpouring of God's spirit, but there was a little boy by the name of Timothy who almost assuredly watched him get kicked out of these cities and kept showing up. And it was, we're gonna see it in Acts 16, one through five, where Paul goes back through. And when he goes back through, this young man named Timothy has come to faith and given his life to the Lord Jesus. So you have this great suffering and this great difficulty that Paul goes through, this stoning that he experiences, and God brings it all the way back. And I would say to you this morning, it is not Paul's physical attractiveness. It is not Paul's wisdom. It is not Paul's great oratory skills. It is not Paul's leadership. It is not Paul's great plan. It is not Paul's great memorization of the Old Testament. It is not even Paul's performance that causes transformation and impact to this degree in the 
these cities. It is that Paul has surrendered his life to the Lordship of Christ Jesus. He has asked that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would transform him. And not only does he do it once, but he does it again, and he does it again, and he does it again. And when things get hard, and when stones get pelted, and we could go around the room, and every one of you has a stone story. You're being pelted. You're suffering under something. You're facing a difficulty. And in the middle of it, the Apostle Paul, bloody and on the ground, stands up and marches back into the city. And it is from this city that this young boy by the name of Timothy rises up and becomes one of the greatest pastors of the greatest churches. Watches what Paul went through. Now go back to my opening quote about Oswald Chambers. It's not what a person does that is of final importance, but who a person is and what they do. The atmosphere produced by who they are, much more than their activities, has lasting influence. Now, Paul knew who he was. Paul knew whose he was. Paul knew from whom he had come. Paul knew where he was going. And Paul knew what he was there to do. King Jesus knew who he was. King Jesus knew whose he was. King Jesus knew from whom he had come. King Jesus knew to whom he was going. And King Jesus knew what he was there to do. I would flip it to you this morning. Do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? Do you know from whom you've come? Do you know where you are going? And do you know what you are here to do? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we turn our attention to communion, to the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would print upon our hearts your heart for us to be city transformers, regardless of what that looks like, regardless of who, of our perception of that success. And Father, I pray where Paul again and again surrenders and bows his knee to you, overcomes suffering and difficulty, and you resurrect him again and again, Lord, I pray that we would experience that same resurrection life of Jesus in us and through us. I think we're going to go back into this song one more time as we close, but I'd love to welcome our prayer team to come down and take their place in the front. If you need special prayer, or maybe if you're here and you've never given your life to this Jesus, I would love to talk with you and pray with you. As you go today, go under the revelation that this is the Jesus that wants to live in you and through you and shift everything around you because of who he is, not because of who you are. Amen. Go sharing him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're so glad you've listened in with us here at Saltbox, and we'd love to get to know you better. So we hope you'll stay in touch and get more involved by joining us on the YouTube live stream. We hope you have a great week, and we encourage you to keep digging into your faith, because at the end of the day, it's just Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less.